Well, today we're going to return to Mark chapter 12. Last week, I hope you were encouraged by the look we took at the sin of people-pleasing. And uh, matter of fact, this, you know, that is something we all struggle with, right? And, and I mean, even this morning, I was standing there with with Kit and and I, I was saying something to her, and I said, there's only one problem with that, and she's like, what? And I said, well, you know, I'll just tell you what it is. Somebody asked to borrow some commentaries from me, and, and I, you know, don't have a big vocabulary, and a lot of times in commentaries there's words. I don't have a clue what they are, so I look them up. Matter of fact, uh, some people that I teach in groups outside of church will tell you that a lot of times if there's a word, I've looked it up and I've got it written down there. I'll give a bonus for whoever can uh, tell me what the word is. So I look it up and I write it there and I say, well, gosh, if I lend him those commentaries, he's going to think I'm stupid because I've got this definition written next to that word, you know. And Kit said, Tim, that's not the right way to look at it. <laughs> and, I, and I said, you're right. I said, there's that people-pleasing thing that I just taught about last week. You know, you talk about pride, good grief. You know, so there it was just rearing up again. And uh, and what brought that on is, as I said last week when I started, was that when these chief priests, scribes, and elders in, in Mark chapter 11 didn't take action because they were afraid of the people. And then the same thing with the, uh, uh, in, in chapter 12 with the um, Pharisees and the, and the Herodians, you know, that they or um, the Sadducees, whoever it was, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians, you know, the same thing, they, you know, that they just, they wanted to do something, but they didn't because they feared um, man. And you see that throughout Scripture. So it's a common problem with mankind, right, that, that this happens. So that's why I thought we should look at that. And then interestingly, as we'll see in today's text, they recognize that Jesus doesn't have that issue. So that's pretty pretty neat. But today we'll pick up in Mark chapter 12 in verse 13 through 17. But keep in mind, I have to keep reeling my mind back to we're still in the same day, right? And, and th- this last time coming into Jerusalem that we've been there for a long time. But I, I remember when I first, that really rung home with me was um, when Shane preached through Luke, you know, that this... This week, it seems like an awful lot of scripture, but we're really talking about just a few days in time. And, you know, back in chapter 11, started with the triumphal entry. That was the the first time. And then in chapter 12, uh, I mean, verse 12 of chapter 11, on the following day when they came from Bethany, that was the second trip in, right? And, and then uh, we're on the third trip in now. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. So that's where we're still there, even in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse seven, uh, 13. So let's read those together. <clears throat> verse 13, Mark 12 says, And they sent to him some Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. There's Jesus does not have the fear of man, right? For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? 
bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, all of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this event. This is the second attempt of his enemies to, during this same day to discredit him with their question. And so it, they sent, it says, they sent to him. The, the undefined they is kind of intriguing. It refers to these baffled members of the Sanhedrin. You know, they've already sent the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and now they send uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees, which, and so the Sanhedrin, it's a large contingent of people. You know, they didn't send the whole Sanhedrin when they were trying to, uh, to trap him, to attack him. So these are, you know, the baffled members, the head of the Sanhedrin, which had just heard the report of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. You know, they kind of handpicked them to go and question him, and now they've given the report. So they, they were determined to, di- the whole Sanhedrin being the they, were determined to discredit Jesus with all those people that were in the temple. You know, the thousands of people that were there. We, this is our prime opportunity to discredit him. You know, the fact that they had these three groups before, the chief priests, scribes, and the elders, they couldn't do it. Okay, well, let's send this other contingent there. And it's incredible that, to me that they didn't waste any time, right, in devising this next scheme against him. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how long after those other guys came back and gave their report that these guys came, but it is still the same day. And as we'll see, another group comes even after these guys. So, you know, I don't know how long they withdrew and went and, you know, uh, it, it's just, they, they weren't ready to give up with the first failure, I guess is a way of saying it. So some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodian, Herodians indicates a select group, right? Uh, just like the prior incidents, uh, they were, they were handpicking who they were going to send, you know, what maybe they were the, the meanest or the most articulate or, uh, the ones that the people feared the most, perhaps, you know, Luke characterizes them as spies, you know, sending these spies to them. And it's interesting um, because there could hardly be two groups with such opposing outlooks. I mean, this is incredible that you've got these two groups that are in direct opposition to one another and they go together. The Pharisees, the one group, they were very nationalistic, whereas the Herodians had um, sold themselves out to the Romans and they were kind of just the puppets of the Romans, kind of the stooges, if you will, of the Romans. The Pharisees represented a very narrow, conservative Judaism, and the Herodians were liberal and syncretic in their convictions. You know, they were all over the place. Where, you know, I mean, I tried to keep my mind from going where with this? What do you think? Yeah, Democrats and Republicans, you know, exactly. You know, where's Trump in here? But maybe he's coming um, in the uh, the Sadducees. No, <laughs> scratch all that, right? But I mean, really, that same type of mindset, though, right? So the Pharisees, they're, they're the right wingers. The Herodians are the left wingers, and the Pharisees represented resistance to Rome, and the Herodians represented accommodation to Rome. So. 
The fact that the two of them could even walk together is an amazing thing to me. You know, they were cemented together by their, their mutual hatred for Jesus, and they hated Jesus. The, the bottom line is they hated him more than they hated each other. You know, what an indictment. You know, the, the fact that, that we know that our whole group hates this group, but we don't like him any better. So the Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their, their religious agenda. Remember what he had done in the temple and the Herodians because he threatened their political arrangement. The bottom line is both groups wanted him dead. They both knew Jesus was a formidable opponent. But remember how he had turned the questioning of his authority back on them by asking them a question back in chapter 11. So now they're searching for another way to trap him. And, and can't you just see them, just picture them in your mind, meeting together, the whole group of the Sanhedrin, and you know, having a discussion, you know, 70-plus people having a discussion. Uh, and, you know, one guy suggests this approach. Let's trap him with this. Another guy suggests this approach. Let's trap him with that. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they don't have any good ideas, but all of a sudden somebody comes up, hey, I've got an idea here. Let's ask him a question that no matter how he answers, the answer will put him in, in mortal trouble with either the Jews or the Romans. You know, if we trap him on both sides, one or the other sides, they're thinking, you know, one group, if he answers this way, they'll be mad. If he answers that way, they'll be mad, right? This time, they, of course, they thought they had him for sure now, right? So these guys are sent to trap him in his talk. And again, we talked about a snare last week, but, you know, these, these words reveal that there's a, very sinister motive behind what he's getting ready to do. And a trap carries the idea of catching a wild animal uh, with a net or a snare. And, you know, these guys were were out to trap him with a word. And has anybody uh, ever done any trapping before? You know, what, what's involved? We've got a couple guys. Anybody over here? What's involved in trapping? Pardon? Deception, okay. Then you gotta like uh, brush off the trail and everything, get all the human sin away from it. Okay. Bait the trap, right? Bait the trap, right? Yeah, bait the trap, deception, hide it. You know, and, and and what's true about trapping? Does it work sometimes? Yeah, and sometimes not, right? And sometimes they get the bait, and sometimes they don't, but then the trap's set, you know, and um I heard of, y'all know Mark Ray? He's got a great trapping story. You want to hear it? A little side note. This just tells you how trapping works, no matter how good you think you are. Well, Mark, when he was a little boy, went um, trapping with this man, and, and they were trying to catch a fox. And, you know, fox then were valuable hides. This was in rural Ohio, and I'm guessing in the, we'll say in the 60s, okay, you know, and you could get some money for a fox hide at that time. And and so they set the trap and they came back and checked it and it had a, a toenail in it. It was set and had a toenail. That was it, right? And so, oh no, well, a couple years later, Mark was fox hunting with guns with his brother and some other guys and they shot a fox. And guess what? It was missing a toenail. <laughs> they got him anyway. 
Yeah, it took a while, but so maybe the fox was bigger and they got more money for the hide at that point. But anyway, the the idea is that you know you got to have bait. You got to have. I think the key thing that, that Greg said you got to have deception, right? If you just go out there and throw it, it's not going to work. So these guys were masters at deceiving, and and this is you know this comes out that they so they they want to elicit from him a statement which they would be able to use against him. And so they hoped to disarm him, to discredit him, to throw him off guard, and, and that he would just he would give an answer that, that would condemn himself, that they wouldn't have to condemn him, that his answer would be the evidence that would be condemning to them. And uh, they, they wanted to get rid of all suspicion from their part, but... Um, but to you know, just to for him to give an answer to where they wouldn't have to give any explanation to anybody. So their lips to start this start to drip with flattery, right? That's part of it. You know, I, we got to make him think that we're really interested here, right? It, but it was very insincere flattery as they as their attempt um, to to catch him, and they say, "We know that you are true." And do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but teach, but truly teach the way of God. So ironically, right, their flattery contained truth. Jesus was not influenced by anybody else. And he does truly teach the way of God because he is God. So after they flatter him, they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? Now, their answer, answer, I mean, question has only two possible answers. And assured that either answer could effectively be used against him in making charges before the authorities, his antagonist waited with bated breath after they asked the question. The Pharisees, they were hoping for a yes that they could herald to the nation of Israel and the Herodians, they were equally waiting for a no, which could be taken to the Romans, bringing about Jesus' demise. In their eyes, he had no escape at all. And that one commentator I read said this, it looked like an absolute trap, one from which there was no escape, but they and all like them had something to learn from Jesus. Isn't that good? You know... They had something to learn. Jesus, fully aware of their treachery and hypocrisy, responded with, why put me to the test? You know, he just turns around and says, why put me to the test? At once, he he tore the mask of hypocrisy off right there, didn't he? And and with that response. Um, Matthew added, you hypocrites. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Boom. You know, what is hypocrisy? What's the definition of that? I mean, we know... The concept of it, but it, it's doesn't it carry the idea of hiding behind a mask? You know, it's not you're not really who you say you are. So the the when he calls him a hypocrite in Matthew, it it just rips the mask right off of him. So ironically, remember that that they said that he spoke the truth, and immediately he confirmed it by revealing the truth about them, right? So he says, "Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it." And they brought him one. Now, this was a small silver coin. And interestingly, on one side of it, 
it had the head of Caesar with an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And on the other side was the inscription, <laughs> chief priest. So you had the priest, the Israel on one side, and you had the uh, Caesar, the government on the other side. And uh, of course, this also was uh, what was uh, known to everybody as a, as a day's wage for a laborer. And uh, also, uh, it's um, a day's work in the vineyard, but also it was a, a kind of a tax that was paid by all adult men and women just for the privilege of existing in that area, right? That's, that's kind of an odd way of putting it, but, you know, government having their ways of, of putting pressure on people. And, and interestingly, he asked them to produce it. Now, is that because um, he'd never seen one before? Well, I've got to look at it before I can answer that. No, you know, this, it, it was a move by him to keep them on the, on the defensive, so when he said, let me look at it, you know, he was going to use it as a visual aid. So everybody there could hear, you know, his explanation. So they bring him the coin, expecting him to denounce it. And, it, and by extension, to denounce the false god, Caesar, and declare that the law of the true Lord forbids paying tribute to Caesar. So when he responded with what with that expected reply, the Herodians figured, well, we'll immediately report him to Pilate, who will then have no choice but to arrest him, and that will discredit him in the eyes of everybody. So I'm sure at this point, when, he, when they hand him the, the coin, I'm, I'm assuming complete silence of the crowd at that point that, that was listening to what was going on. Then he asked the question to them, whose inscription is this? as if he didn't know, right? But that's, and they answer Caesar's. And his unexpected comeback shattered their evil expectations, right? And, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The first half of his answer is really translated literally, the things that are of Caesar's give back to Caesar. That coin represented the things that are Caesar's, the rights, the duties, belonging to the realm of human government. And their use of the coin proclaimed their obligation to the government that it represented, just like ours does. Jesus was clearly teaching that paying taxes to secular government is an obligation, and the word render means to re- repaying something that is owed. Render to Caesar. You owe him, render to him, give to him. And scripture teaches that government is an institution by God. Now, sometimes that's hard to swallow, is it not? I mean, we think it is. What do you think people that are being ruled by communists think? You know, but the same principle applies. Turn with me to Romans chapter um, 13. We can see Paul writing about this in Romans 13. Um, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Who? Every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, there's a lot of people that need to take heed to that in in our world, in our country today, right? I can't tell you the amount of times I get a phone call from a mom or a dad that says, little Johnny got arrested last night. What should we do? My answer, leave little Johnny in jail. He broke the law. I'm a law-abiding to the best of my ability, tax-paying citizen, and he broke the law. But, I mean, what do you do with whoever resists, the authorities resist what God has appointed. You're, you're getting in the way of God working in that little Johnny's life. Leave little Johnny in jail and let the system run. You know, the jailhouse religion, you know, everybody gets saved. Ask the men in our church that minister in the jail every week, you know. They all get saved while they're in jail. And then what happens? You know how many repeat offenders there are? Most, <laughs> right? Most that are there go right back out, right? Well, look at First Peter 2. Same thing. Peter writes about it. First Peter 2, verse 13 um, through 15. Peter writes, uh, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put silence the ignorance of the foolish people. So scripture is clear on the fact that we are to be subject to the government that God has placed over us, right? So essential and implicit in in our Lord's teaching here is the state is a valid institution, Richard Halverson was a chaplain of the United States Senate uh, from February of 1981 till the uh, end of 1994. He said this, listen to this quote. To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of state just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. 
end quote, right? And that's hitting it pretty, pretty good there. You know, wouldn't it be great if everybody just obeyed, right? Think how your parenting would go, you know? I mean, I've got adult kids and, and you know, grandkids, and, you know, they just, I mean, we wouldn't need jails if everybody just, I mean, the laws are there. Why in the world can't you just obey them, right? I mean, that's Shane's preaching in Romans 7 and 8. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Paul's saying, hey, there it is. See it, the law written. I know it. I know it, and I can't do it, right? We we just can't and won't because, as Halverson says there, because we're sinners, as the Word of God says, because we're sinners. And, and um, you know, the, the depravity of man. Thank the Lord we're not as evil as we could be, right? Because if we were as evil as we could be, uh, you know, we'd all be axe murderers. But um, some of us, uh, for various reasons, have higher morals than other people. But nonetheless, you know, we're all sinners. So Jesus assumes the validity of the secular state and its demands on us, on the guys here, even when it is controlled by a man like Caesar who thinks he's a god. You know, we haven't gotten there, you know, that we've maybe, well, we won't go there, but, you know, you know what I mean, that Caesar saw himself as a god and a poorly run state is what we got to remember is a poorly run state is better than no state at all, right? The only time government may be legitimately disobeyed is when? What do you think? When it goes against scripture? Right, certainly. When it commands you to do something that is absolutely against the word of God or forbids you to do something that's commanded by God's word, you know, that... You know, so worshiping God could come into that. So, speaking of the worshiping God part of that, you know, if it were against the law for us to gather like this right now, do we break the law and gather like this right now anyway? Or, or what? Think of communism. How did the communists do it? Underground, Underground right. Yeah. You know, I I uh, I had the, a really cool blessing years ago. This was in the early early nineties. I was in Romania and I met a guy, Titus Colzia, and he was a medical doctor that left the practice of medicine, went to seminary, became a preacher. Not that you got to do that, doc, but uh, <laughs> um, and we had I had the my wife and I had the privilege of having lunch with him. And with our friends, and um, he spoke real good English as well. And so everybody's sharing around the table. And he looked at me, and he said, "This is the pride of again this fear of man thing again that we talked about last week." And golly, it's still going on. That was a long time ago. So um, he said, "Well, what do you do, Tim?" And I was in the exterminating business, and I was embarrassed to say that because I mean I'm sitting here with a doctor preacher. You know, and I'm a bug guy. <laughs> and so I told him, I said, well, I'm an exterminator. And he said, really? And I was like, well, yeah. And he said, you aren't going to believe this. My dad was an exterminator. My dad was a pastor. And when communism came into Romania, my dad became an exterminator. And that's the way he ministered to his flock. 
he went into their homes as a bug man and he was able to, I was like, wow. (laughs) So, you know, they found creative ways to still not disobey the word of God by meeting as believers in homes underground secretly. So, um, you know, if that ever happens, I'll I'll go back in the exterminating business and y'all can call and I'll come see you. Um, so, you know, that's, that's right. But we do obey the government, right? There are, until we're asked to, to sin. But the overall point in Mark here is that we as Christians are called to profound obedience to, to our governments. I mean, think of the difference that that would make in the lives of, of people in public that see you as something different, you know, um, that just without you saying anything, people pick up on this, Right. You know, Christians are are to be markedly law-abiding citizens, even down to the speed limit, the speed limit. Oh, grueling, is it not grueling? I remember, and some of y'all have heard this story, I used to teach at a rehab center in Ellijay on Tuesday nights. Well, I... I can't eat dinner and then go teach, right? I just get, I guess I'm overeating. That's kind of obvious, but um, I get lethargic after I eat. So I would wait until I would come home from teaching. Well, by then, by 9.30, I'm starving. That's probably not real healthy either to eat that late. But So I would hurry up to get home when my teaching was done. I can remember it as sure as I'm standing here. I would turn off of old Highway 5 onto the 515. Now finally I can go. You know, and one night, you know, my conscience just bang. You know, Tim, it's it's, uh, up there it was 70. Back it down, set the cruise. I can do that. I can set the cruise, right? Take my foot off, relax. Oh, then you come up into Jasper. Oh, 55. You know, I can walk faster than this, you know. I mean, you just feel like you're not even moving and just anticipating getting to the other side of Jasper down towards ball ground. That sign says 70 again. I would agonize over that. Did y'all ever do that? You know, but I was trying to obey the government, um, Sometimes I do, sometimes I do. Anyway, the second half of his answer, so, so he nails them on the government side, right? And, and that's, you know, was the one half of the guys. The, and now the other half. Give to God the things that are God's. And that reminded them that they also had an abiding obligation to God. How about that? Their duty to God didn't eliminate their duty to human government. And they had formulated their question on the assumption that these two two duties were totally incompatible. But Jesus insisted that there was no conflict between the two, right? The dilemma didn't hold, and it wasn't an either-or, but Jesus gives them a both-and, right? They thought it's certainly he's going to have to pick either this or that, and he gives them both. You've got to have both. So when he said, render to God the things that are God, that was a, a subtle statement that guess who owns you in totality, right? God does. The coin was Caesar's because it bore his image. We're God's. 
as human beings because we bear God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Their attempt to trap him had failed miserably, and this failure left them in a state of amazement. And Mark says they marveled at him. And Luke's account says that they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Once again, the superiority of Christ is shown to all, right? And it's just amazing. The brilliance, the brilliance, of course, because he's God, but to me, the compassion and the love that, you know what this... This is a really silly analogy, but it just works for me. Um, I walked out of my house the other day, and I heard this noise, and I looked, and there was a big red-shouldered hawk sitting on this branch in my front yard, and there's a mockingbird dive-bombing him and hitting him, you know, and flitting away. All that hawk had to do was turn around and just swipe him or grab him better yet and eat him. Right, and he just sat there with that, and that—that's what these guys remind me of. Jesus could annihilate these guys in a flash second, and he doesn't. You know, out of love, he—he he teaches, and so he teaches to the point to where even those that are just totally oblivious to to the whole thing marvel at him and just put him to silence. Right, so. Continuing on here, we have the third attempt this day to discredit Jesus before the people by means of a difficult question. We've had the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders trying to trap him. We've had the Pharisees and the Herodians try and trap him. And we've seen how it's gone for those two groups. And it was proving unwise to cross swords with him intellectually, right? He had the greatest knowledge of any person. He had the greatest knowledge and comprehension of Scripture because he is the Word, according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John Michael can finish that one for me. He, he memorized that five years ago, right? He was, he was a great rabbi, the greatest interpreter of Scripture, again, because he's the one that, that wrote it. So, But his enemies, being slow learners... Send another platoon of folks after him. And we see that in verse 18 through 27. So let's read that. Next group, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but like angels, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but 
of the living. You are quite wrong. So the Sadducees came from families of wealth, families of high standing in society, but they were very worldly in their thinking, and they, thank goodness, uh, they weren't as many in number as the, as the Pharisees, but they were very ill-mannered people, very full of themselves people. The historian Josephus wrote this about them. The Sadducees are, are even among themselves rather boorish. I had to look that one up. B-O-O-R-I-S-H means boastful. So the Sadducees are even among themselves rather boastful in their behavior, and their intercourse with their peers are as rude as aliens. Bottom line is, they didn't like anybody very much at all. And their main distinction is that they rejected the supernatural apart from God himself. Matter of fact, in Acts 23.8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. Josephus again says they did not believe there was any life after death and there was no judgment, no rewards, no penalties. And of course, according to them, there was no resurrection. So politically, these guys, um, their, their highest agenda was absolute cooperation with Rome. Since they believed that this world was all there was, uh, they pursued power, wealth, position and control. And their accommodations to Rome caused them to be hated by everybody, um, or the general public anyway. They also ran a profitable business. They were the ones that were in charge of all that action that was going on in the temple. So obviously they're quite furious with our Lord for his twice disrupting their lucrative enterprise there. And uh, they held the primacy of the Mosaic Law in the Pentateuch. And, and they were they they said that all other scripture is subordinate to the writing of Moses. All the rest of the Old Testament, they said, is really just thrown away. Or we're just going to go by the uh, by the Pentateuch. They're consistent uh, with their denial of failure. Or I'm sorry, of future life. They lived as if the present. They were in the present. And there's no tomorrow. What does that sound like? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? They were living for the day. John MacArthur says about them, uh, he quote, that since they were annihilationists and believed the soul did not survive death, they believed there, there were ultimately no penalties for bad behavior or rewards for good behavior, which rendered them religious, theistic humanists. Now, what a place to be, right? Um, Their agenda was to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people by asking him a question he couldn't answer. You know, it's just amazing to me, you know, that when are they going to learn that this guy, you can't ask him a question. I'd have tried to trap him some other way, right? You you can't ask him a question. He's got intellectual superiority to everybody. We've thrown the best at him. But obviously they didn't get it. I mean, this sounds so familiar that here they come again. So they decided to give an impossible dilemma concerning the issue of marriage um, after the supposed resurrection that they didn't even believe in. So a question designed to make belief that the resurrection was just absurd and foolish to just discredit that whole thing. And it's, it's interesting the way they laid this out here is that their question isn't stated until verse 23. Uh, but so they, they proceed the question with a very rhetorical preparation to the question. And we see that in uh, 
verses 19 through 22, they, they lay a scriptural foundation. You know, if you're going to attack him, let's use scripture. That's where we can get him to mess up. So they, they say in verse 19, Moses wrote for us, they call him teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the scriptural foundation. And then they narrate their case by, uh, by the inquiry that they make in verses 20 through 22. They address him as teacher like the Pharisees and the Herodians did. But unlike them, they aren't coming with insincere flattery, right? This is just a formal address of teacher to them. There's, there's no flattery here, no pretense that they actually had come to learn from him. Because they, they felt themselves that they're superior to everybody. And uh, they wanted to expose his inadequacy as a teacher in, in theological matters. So they go straight to the, to, to the writings of Moses. So their objection was to discredit him before the people and show themselves as superior to all. And they have a trick question. And again, they use scripture. So this is really, um, turn to... Um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, um, this is at the heart of their trick question was, was a custom in, in Levite marriage. Um, so they're really quoting from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Deuteronomy 25, 5 says, if, a brother, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this, this was an ancient custom that existed, you know, long... Actually, this was from the laws, but there was a custom that this comes from that was actually before the law. And we see that in Genesis 38. Turn there real quick because it was neglected and it brought scandal with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, 6. Genesis 38, 6 says, And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, 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 have you say his name, uh, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother." And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So this was, we can see that the before even the law in, Levit- in Deuteronomy was, was instituted there, that it was even existed long before that, this principle. And its purpose was to keep a family from dying out, right? To keep its lineage alive and to keep its inheritance intact. And so it's just interesting to me that these experts in the Pentateuch, you know, they, why didn't they go back to Genesis? They, they went to the law thinking they would trip Jesus up with that. But so having stated 
that promise, the, the Leverite promise, they put forth the puzzle in verses 20 through um, 22, and then they ask their question. So can't you just see them after asking the question, standing there with their arms crossed, I think, you know, just a smug, self-satisfied confidence. We got him, boys. You know? So, But they were confident that his inability to answer their carefully crafted uh, question would destroy the thought of him as being Messiah to the other people that were listening. Little did they know, however that they'd met the supreme mind. They should have known, but they didn't. And they were going to be slam dunked by Jesus. You know, Jesus stated the foundation for his answer in verse 24. Look at that. Is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Whoa. I mean, you talk about getting hammered. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? You know, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You know, talk, I mean, talk about bluntness. He tells them they're wrong. Basically, he says, your view of life has skewed your thinking, all of your thinking. You know, you're so sure you're right. You've, you've narrowed life down to this limited horizon. You say that, that this life's all there is. You know, you're wrong because you fail to recognize two great facts, God's word and God's power. You know, and if you think about this, if not all, almost all, theological error can be traced to those two things, right? I mean, it just can. You know, whether it's in business or science or religion or politics or psychology or life, every human error in thinking can be attributed to one of those two things. Either you don't know the scriptures or you don't know the power of God. Probably both, right? So, I mean, I appreciate the value of science. Uh, you know, thank God for good scientists. Thank God even more for scientists like Ken Ham, right, that, that do this the right way. But we've got to recognize um, the truth that Blaise Pascal brought out to us in, when was he, uh, 1700, 16, 1700s, uh, French uh, guy, philosopher, scientist. Listen to what he said. The ultimate purpose of reason is to bring us to the place where we see that there is a limit to reason, right? It stops. The most brilliant mind stops in their reasoning somewhere, right? And that's because science isn't the ultimate authority. The word of God is, and the power of God is. You know, it's, science is partial. It's incomplete. It deals only with time and it can't measure eternity, right? That's why you got to have, you know, all this time that they try and say we have. In, in contrast to the authority of science and reason, God's authority is eternal and it's absolute. And it encompasses all of time, all of reality, and it never changes. That's the beauty of it, right? It never changes. But, you know, they couldn't understand that just like, Lost people today can't understand it, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the, mat the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's why, really, ultimately, I don't, you know, don't want to minimize their, 
their misunderstanding, but they were coming with every ounce of human ingenuity. They sent these three brilliant-minded groups of people to try and trip him up, to trap him, and they couldn't do it, right? So next week, we'll see how Jesus deals with the fact that they neither know the scriptures nor the power of God and how he unfolds that to them. But